Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Welcome to In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast, recorded in the actual bookshop. This is a community-run bookshop in Glossop, an old mill town, at the foothills of the Pennines, on the edge of the Peak District. It's a beautiful place to live and a beautiful place to work. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to work in this bookshop. Uh, my name's Steve Roberts, and I'm your host for this podcast. We invite guests who come in and tell us about their four or five favourite books. We, dis- or we discuss or we listen to them telling us why they love these books so much. Uh, and we generally have a natter about books. Uh, our guest today is Matt Hill. Matt Hill's a, a songwriter uh, who lives in Glossop. Uh, Matt has been, I, I think it's fair to say, has been on the scene for a number of years and uh, is possibly one of the um, people responsible for the Americana scene in this country being so big. Matt was there at the start and perhaps helped to even seed it. He's a fantastic singer-songwriter. He goes uh, under the name of Quiet Loner. And if you want to listen to him, go to quietloner.com and uh, you will be rewarded. Your ears will be rewarded. So, hello, Matt. Good evening. You're right. Yeah, not bad, thanks, Steve. Yeah, nice cool. to be in the bookshop. I am a shareholder of this bookshop, so right. I feel at home here. Right, I think I should say that we the, it's community bookshop because we have uh, shareholders. We have 126 shareholders, most of whom live in the town who own this bookshop. Uh, Simon, who's who's sat there with headphones on, making sure we do this right. I think, I think you're also a, a shareholder. I'm a shareholder too. And yeah. I'm a shareholder. We only allow no, we don't only allow shareholders. <laughs> uh, anyway, hello, Matt. Um, so, you brought with you, I see one, two, three, four, five books. I have, um, which we're going to go through. They look like um, the interest in selection. Uh, let me, let's get started. Do you want to introduce your first book to us? I'll start by saying it was really difficult to pick five. Mm. I'm sure everybody says that, but it, it's especially difficult. I mean, I've got so many, I'm a, I'm a songwriter and a musician, so obviously I've got tons of books about music. So I've managed to sort of sort of refrain from picking five books about music, which would probably be more reflective of my general reading. Um, but I've picked a variety. So, well, why don't we start with this one at the top? Um, this book's called The Hard Way Up, the autobiography of Hannah Mitchell, suffragette and rebel. I first read this book a couple of years ago. I was doing a project where I was a uh, songwriting residence at the People's History Museum in Manchester. Um, and part of what I was doing was trying to tell the story about the fight for the right to vote. And I wanted to hear from the women who were part of that fight, the suffragettes. Um, and I came across Hannah Mitchell and I was immediately sort of attracted to her because she was local. She, she grew up just a few miles from where we now are, just over the Snake Pass uh, in a really remote farm uh, in the middle of nowhere, basically. And when she first left home, she came to Glossop. So she, she did live here right. for a little bit uh, before moving off into Manchester and, and getting involved in, in the suffragette struggle. And luckily for us, Hannah's wrote a life story um, and what's interesting as well is she died in 1956 and this book was not published during her lifetime. Right. So when she wrote it towards the end of her life, this incredible story about this massively important part of our history, she couldn't get it published. Nobody was interested in hearing the, the ramblings of an old lady. Um, but luckily for us, her, if it was a son or a nephew or some member of her family had the manuscript and here we get it, you know, straight from Hannah's, 
mouth, really. You know, yeah. the, the story of, of how a working class girl, you know, and she and, and that's the other aspect that I liked about this. A lot of the suffragettes, there was a class issue within the suffragette, the, the wider movement yes. of suffragists. Um, and history, there are some who would make the argument that history remembers the, you know, the Pankhurst who, uh, and, and less so the, the working class women who were involved. So anyway, it's just an incredible book. And, and I think the thing that got me is like a childhood was so bleak. You can't imagine, like, A, a the remoteness of where she lives. If you go over the Snake Pass and down, she, she lived at a place called Oldport Castles. Okay. It's not far from where the Lady Bower Reservoir is. But she lived in the middle of nowhere. But it was just how it was for girls. It's like they didn't get to go to school the same way as their brothers. They weren't encouraged to have an education. And she was basically a skivvy. So what drove her on? Does she say in her book what it was? It drove her to, to assert what she believed was her rights and other women's rights. She, she basically almost says that it's her character, you right. know, that she was born this She's sort bolshy. of... Yeah, which is interesting because I'm sure it's it's not just it's not just that. Um, so no, I don't know. I mean, she obviously she meets people that influence her. She gets sort of involved in socialism in in, in the early stirrings of that through um, this thing called the Clarion movement, which was like there were sort of a cy- cycling clubs and uh, and walking, okay. right, uh, you know, right. like yeah. sort of outdoor activities for young people. Yes. But they kind of had a socialist as- aspect to them. Um, and she also got politicised working in textiles in Bolton. I think she, she moved after Glossop. And a lot of the other women there, they got politicised through the conditions that they were working in. So it was also the start of that trade union movement, um, the beginnings of... This was pre-Labour Party. There was no Labour Party then. So it was kind of early days of these ideas of... When we talk about socialism now, I suppose we have it's a loaded word. But back then, it was just this idea about having a more equal society. Mm. And she felt life was uh, was unfair for her and for other women. She was fortunate in a way that where she lived was on in in a place where the, where the working class in Manchester yeah. and their groups would go out to to walk and to cycle and to go yeah. visit the reservoirs and all that kind of thing. It was a big organised kind of uh, kind of a day out, wasn't it? Kind yeah. of thing. You know, so she would have met people probably. Yep, she did. She met people, and and that, and you know, they were very influential. I think what's interesting is about her as well is that she talks about. There's a really famous quote by her, um, and I, I wish I could remember it, but it, it, she basically said that that women have to do everything with one hand tied behind their backs, right. and what she referred to there was just the domestic drudgery of being a woman. So even when she was this leading figure in the suffragist movement and she was travelling around the country speaking at rallies and talking about women's votes, she's still having to, like, clean her husband's... Right. ..do his laundry and and look after the kids and make sure that there was food in the house for the kids to eat. And she she still had all that responsibility because, you know, her husband was not expected to do that, you know, and it's so... It's such a different world now. Interestingly, when I first read it, as part of the research for the album I was writing, I, I couldn't, I basically tried to buy a copy. Um, and it's about, the cheapest I could get was about, six, it was about 60 quid right. on Amazon. Um, so I thought, well, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not paying that much for it. So I went to Glossop Library and they got a copy, but then you're not allowed to take it out because it's quite rare, this book, I think. Um, so I read it 
in Glossop Library, like in a room, which was in a way was quite nice to go into a library and actually have to read the right, book. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I had to like book in and was like, right, I'm going to have this book now for four hours and I'll read it. I was furiously writing notes because I wrote a song called Hannah, um, which is which is on the album, The Battle for the Ballot. Um, so I was furiously scribbling notes as I was reading it. But I do actually have my own copy now, which I have in my hand. And I walked into a charity shop in Bakewell and got this for two quid, which is just unbelievable. Because as I say, they, they go for like a lot of money um, online. But can I read you a little bit? Of course you can, yeah. So basically her mom was a, was a tyrant and you know beat her and was like violent towards her and, and, and verbally, verbally abusive. Uh, I, she was quite close to her father. So this is the kind of background. She's got brothers and sisters who are favored over her. She's like the one in the family that gets the brunt of all her mother's violence. So she's about 14 years old at this point. This is when she runs away from home. I made up my mind to run away and try and earn a living somewhere else. The antagonism between me and my mother grew worse. She was determined to mold me to her pattern while I was equally determined to retain my individuality. She strove to enforce her will by nagging, ravings and beatings but I was stronger now and I had no mind to allow myself to be thrashed. After one of her attacks, I snatched from her the stick she was using, thrust it into the fire and pushed her away, daring her to strike me again with so much vehemence that she abandoned the contest for the time being. Um, and then she goes on to say that basically she decides that she is, is gonna run away and her dad, she goes to tell her dad and her dad gives her a few quid and says, you know, you'd be better off because I think her dad was quite frightened of her mum as well. Right. Then she describes the walk. And, and any of us who live around here know what this walk's like, yeah. because if you've been over to the other side of Bleaklow from Glossop, and it is a, I've, I mean, I've done this walk. I've been to where she grew up. I've been to the house. I walked over there and back. And uh, it's a really hard walk. Um, anyway, so she describes that. So she's, she's 14. She's got no idea where she's, you know, what's in the future for her. She, she says, I tramped over the hill, hardly conscious of the distance, blinded by tears and full of grief at leaving my father and uncle and the two younger children who were both very fond of me. I knew now that I must rely on myself. I knew also that I was ill-equipped for the battle of life, uneducated, untrained. What should I find myself capable of doing amongst more fortunate youth? These were bitter reflections and did not tend to soften my feelings towards my mother, although I felt a faint sense of relief in the knowledge that I was free from her scolding tongue and violent temper. But somewhere on that moorland road, I left my childhood behind forever. With my head in a book, doing chores every day, but still no education for a farmer's girl like me, so I ran away I ran away
So yeah, she's she's an amazing woman, and and uh, there's some great stuff in there about she goes uh, when she's in Manchester, they go to disrupt meetings, and there's one where she describes um, getting on the wrong side of Winston Churchill. Yeah, um, which is quite interesting, and um, yeah, it's I really recommend it. Um, but of course, as I've just said, it's about sixty quid to buy it. So, yeah. but I think you can kindle it. Right. Oh dear. Yeah. So that was the hard way up by uh, Hannah Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, what's your next book? Okay, well, let's um, let's go on to this one, which is Norman Mailer, The Executioner's Song. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you mentioned that I'm a songwriter, and, and I, I've used that book, Hannah, as an inspiration for a song. And I also got a song out of this book. Um, but this book is about um, a guy called Gary Gilmore, who was a, uh, a murderer and uh, was sentenced to death. And it's it's by Norman Mailer, and it's just I mean it's it's huge. You can see the size yes. of it. I mean it's it won the Pulitzer uh, Prize, and it tells this story, a uh, true story about this guy, who is a petty criminal, kills some people, um, gets sentenced to death as a lot of people did back in the 1970s, uh, but at that time America was not executing people like they do now. And Gilmore became famous because he sued the authorities to carry out his own execution, um, which became this huge media storm at the time. Um, and so Norman Mailer wrote this, you know, I don't know what you call that, a tome? Tome. Tome. Mm. Huge tome about it. And um, it really affected me when I, when I read it. And um, it's just I, I, so hard to, to know what to say about it. I mean, it talks, I suppose it makes you think a lot about the death penalty and what that means because um, he does I've read this book I love this book and it reads like fiction you have an understanding almost Mail is so good that you understand Gary Gilmore for some yes. reason you understand why he wants to kill himself yeah. the yeah. Mailer's writing yeah. is journalistic and but at the same time it's a cracking story isn't it moves with patience and I think that's it he's you know he's a journalist I guess or he's journalistic type writing it's a true story but it reads like a novel yeah and he he frames it in such a way that it's a real page turner and there's all these other characters in it that that are part of his life and they really come to life as well and yet you do feel like you get inside his head yeah, yeah definitely you know and he's not a particularly nice person no. but he's also not um he's not a monster you know, he's kind of he's, he's he's kind of casually brutal, isn't he? Yeah. At times, yeah. And and yeah. he's you know he's not had the easiest life, yeah. but equally he doesn't. You know, there's there's a there's a bit in it where he's talking to a journalist. Um, I can't remember towards the end when he's near near the execution, and this journalist is almost, you know, kept prompting him to sort of say, it, "You've had a terrible childhood. What turned you into this monster? You know, terrible childhood." And and Gilmore gets really incensed and he's like, don't you dare say, my mother was a wonderful woman. You know, don't say, it's nothing to do with that, it's me. You know, I've been bad from the day I was born kind yeah. of thing. You know, it's that, he, he quite a sort of fatalistic. My impression of the way Mailer tells it is that he understood that Gilmore mythologised his life, didn't yeah. he? Straight, from when he was young, yeah. there was a, there was a, a myth yeah. being made in his head anyway yeah. kind of thing. And Mailer draws that out of thing. Well I think I think that's really interesting actually. Because 
so many, I mean, we talk about music and we're going to come on to a music book in a bit, but within the rock and roll, you know, that, that creation of, of your own myth has always been really important. And I think in the arts in general, and Gilmore understood that as well. I and mean, he created this kind of character for himself. And it just made me think about, you know, like today with Instagram and influencers and these mm. people that, I mean, they're creating a certain sort of themselves, but they're not like creating a myth of themselves. They're actually creating the kind of ordinariness of themselves, isn't it really? It's like every, this is me having my tea. Yeah. Right. You know, whereas Gary Gilmore saw himself as a kind of like this outlaw figure, this kind of romantic. Well, you wrote a song about him. You wrote a song about <laughs> you. You wrote a song about him, and the tale is is told in this book, isn't it? Of uh, him, his last request. Is... Yeah. Well, it, one of the things that comes over in this book is he's a massive fan of Johnny Cash, um, and Johnny Cash comes up throughout, and and Gary's mom particularly liked Johnny Cash. Um, and it's a long time ago I wrote this song. And so I was actually looking to find the bit. And there's very little in the book about mm. it, actually. So this is, I actually highlighted it. <laughs> it's like a couple of lines. And it said, he's being given access to a telephone in prison. And it says, next, he went into Fagin's office to make a call to his mother. Of course, Ron didn't try to listen. But Gary came out all excited because he was also able to get a call in to Johnny Cash. Then he began to move around restlessly as if it bothered him that the record player was going and there was nobody to dance with. And then and then it goes on. And I, was, I can remember at the time thinking, hang on, have I just read that right? He phoned Johnny Cash and there's no more information. I was like, I wanted, I wanted to know what they said. You know, I was like, you can't just drop that in. But he's a man like the night before he's executed and he phones Johnny Cash. And so I was right, scrabbling around trying to find out something else. And then like... A little further on, a few like a few pages on, he describes like word for word this conversation that that Gilmore's having with Nicole, who's his girlfriend. And at this moment, Nicole is saying that she's going to kill herself when Gary gets executed because they're these star-crossed lovers and they're going to do this suicide pact. Um, and he's he's talking to her and he's he starts singing this song and then it goes, he stops singing. Oh man, I told you, I talked to Johnny Cash, goddamn. Gilmore laughed. Johnny Cash knows I'm alive. He knows you're alive. He likes us, Nicole. Amazing. <laughs> and then, I th and then there was this one other reference where someone overheard him, I think, and said something like, um, he, he makes reference to the phone call that Gilmore said, "Are you the real Johnny Cash?" <laughs> when he's on the phone to him. But that's kind of all it mentions. It doesn't really talk about what they talked so, about. So you got a whole song out of that. Yeah. Get me Johnny Cash on yeah. the film. Yeah, so I just filled in the gaps and I just kind of made some references to some Johnny Cash songs. Um, but, oh, there's so many little details in this book. It's so forensic. Like, it's so detailed yes. and so beautifully, as you say, written like a novel. And it's an incredible story, just how this one man's desire to, to die, having been sentenced to death, becomes this huge media circus. And he becomes the most famous man in America and everybody wants a piece of him. You know, they're, 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 I was flicking through it last night just to remind myself of some bits. And Rupert Murdoch is quite a big character in this book right. because he's obviously trying to get the angles on it or the family and trying to get people's stories and the way the media swoop in and the way it affects all those yeah, other people around him, yeah. including his brother, um, who's now a famous writer himself. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I first heard about Gary Gilmore from the adverts. Yeah. Gary Gilmore's eyes. 
uh, song, which I've got, I've got seven inch of at home, but I didn't know, I didn't know until years later. Don't fear the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult as well. Oh, really? I didn't. Know is that. also based on. So there you go. So he is mythologizing his work, doesn't he? He's yeah. got you. He's got you, the Blue Oyster Cult, uh, and the advert. <laughs> Yeah, and it's you know, and for me as well, like right, reading about crime has been a, like a big part. As when I was a child, I used to read books about serial killers when I was at school. You know, which is a bit which sounds pulling, a bit pulling the legs off a bit sex. weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I was fascinated from right. an early age. I can remember the the uh, what was he called? The Black Panther. Okay, yeah. In, in Don, Donald Nielsen yeah. um, in the seventies, and that kind of got my interest in the Yorks. Remember the Yorkshire Ripper case really clearly at the time and so I've read lots of of all those books and and there are some really great writers I mean the uh Gordon Burns an amazing writer he wrote um a book about the Yorkshire Ripper somebody's husband somebody's son and also um Happy Like Murderers which is the best book about Fred and Rose West it's amazing um and I think there's just something really for me compelling like this this book about about going into that the darkest recess of the human mind and particularly when it's done skillfully by a great writer and it needs that mm. because a lot of these serial killer books if you read them they're almost a bit you know pornographic in 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 their sense that it's just sensational yeah, basically yeah. it's sensationalist and it's mm. it, it's it, it's graphic and it's almost sensationalizing that that level of violence and that's not what it's about you know for right. me it, the, the the interesting thing is getting into the psyche like why does this happen how can some people end up like that? And so I've always wanted to read about them. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. So what's up next, Matt? Um, OK, let's go for um, Earthlights. Right, there's a book I, I knew very little about. <laughs> um, so this is uh, from, I think, the late 70s. Um, It's called Earthlights, Towards an Understanding of the UFO Enigma. As I said, I don't read a lot, as many novels as I do nonfiction. And I've got tons and tons of books about what you loosely might call the paranormal. (laughs) Um, And and there's so many to pick from. But this one had a huge influence on me. Um, And I've I've read almost everything Paul Devereaux's done. In fact, I've I've met him and uh, I worked on a project that he did. Um, as a volunteer a few years ago so I actually went and I, I've never seen it but we got we got followed around by a Canadian film crew um, and um, Fantastic. when I was in my 20s I was spent I spent the night on top of a mountain having my dreams um, analysed okay by Paul no, no, Paul, no Paul stayed in a hotel somewhere oh right, right okay <laughs> yeah. the very definition of a cult <laughs> um it, uh, anyway, but this but this book particularly is really it's really interesting. What right. um, Paul Devereux came out of this movement in the late sixties, um, out of the the counterculture really in the hippie movement in England, um, this fascination with ley lines. Right. Okay. So ley lines is this idea that there's these lines of energy across the landscape, or lines of something that line up stone circles and churches and old wells and. So it's kind of about very rooted in the English landscape. And he came out of interest in that, which was resurgent in the late 60s um, through an author called John Michel, who, who was a really interesting guy. He used to hang out with the Stones and, you know, it was all part of that thing. But this book is about strange lights. Um, so it's not really about nuts and bolts UFOs. What he starts off by saying is that people have always seen weird, strange lights 
Now, culturally, we only began to call them UFOs from the 1947 onwards. Um, Kenneth Arnold, a uh, famous sighting in America in the Cascade Mountains. So, but, but prior to 1947, there were no flying saucers, there were no aliens, um, but people have always seen odd things in the sky. But culturally, we would interpret them as fairies or as dragons or whatever. So that's always been Devereux's starting point is, well, what are these strange lights? And um, this book puts forward this idea that they're, they're related to plate tectonic stress. So he talks a lot about ball lightning, which is a very weird form of lightning. You get it often in aircraft. And sometimes, you know, that like a ball of lightning okay, will, I know will like go down the center aisle of yes. a plane. I mean, yes. It's very rare. Yeah. Um, he talks about that kind of thing. And, and, um, and his theory, he mapped UFO sightings and there were certain hotspots around the country. And Devereux in this book, for the first time ever, no one's had ever done this before, makes the link that these hotspots are close to geological faults in the Earth's crust. It's a really interesting idea. There's something in it, certainly. Um, and we've got one right near us in yeah. Glossop, mm. just over the hill mm. in Longdendale. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever seen any strange lights in uh, No, I haven't really. I mean, maybe I have and I haven't recognised them as being strange <laughs> lights. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I've seen loads of lights in Longdendale, but they're almost always aeroplanes on their way yeah, to Manchester yeah, Airport. Yeah. But there's also this uh, an interesting idea that that the reason for that is because of the reservoirs, that the weight of the water, you know, has put stress on uh, in the earth. And this is this is basically the premise is that this kind of huge stresses and strains creates these, not, these odd lights. Not water and light. No, 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 no. The weight of water on the, right. on, the on the rocks. I mean, the, the other one is the earthquake lights. Oh, okay. So when earthquakes happen, there are often odd balls of light appear. So there's obviously something to it. And... But this book and being introduced to Paul Devereux in general uh, was a, just a huge part of my life in my 20s because I got really fascinated with stone circles and I travelled up and down the country visiting these kind of old sacred sites. And I loved it. And I still do love visiting in those places. Um, and, you know, and then this was a, one of the other contenders for the book was Julian Cope's. Of course, yeah, book, yeah, yeah. Um, about megaliths, mm. um, which is, again, a fabulous book. Um, all about the, what a brilliantly weird, strange country we live in, you know. What's next? Okay, a novel. Oh, there we go. Hey. Um, it's my one and only novel that I've picked. Um, I do read novels, um, but I don't read as many as the non-fiction. Is there a reason for that? Do you not trust novels or do you feel like, or, or do you trust? Because you must, if you, if you mostly read, say, Elvis books, yeah. for example, you must find that there are some absolute rubbish yeah. books about Elvis, yeah. but still you'll read them. Yes, I will. So yeah, are you kind of obsessional in, in, in the things that you, in the subject matter, do you think? Yeah. And that's why novels maybe, you know. Yeah, I think I'll, most of the books that I read are non-fiction and they're usually music um, or the paranormal. And as you say, a lot of them are absolute nonsense, especially in the in the world of paranormal. You can imagine what kind of yeah. crackpot yeah. nonsense you get in that. Um, but I'm interested in the subject. And I think with novels, it's really hard for me to, to take the risk of committing the time when I don't really know what I'm getting into. 
Um, so it's a leap of faith for me really? uh, to read novels. Yeah. So what tends to happen is if I, if I read one and I like it, I go a bit obsessional and I read everything. So there are only a few that I've done that with. Um, and Tom Robbins, this is the, the guy whose book I bought in, is one of them. Um, the others are like James Elroy, I've read everything, and David Peace mm-hmm. particularly, yeah. and those two are very similar writers. I love, I love them like very realistic and and rooted in history, um, and gritty. But Tom Robbins is is completely the opposite. He's completely bonkers and and very kind of psychedelic. Um, it, it, again, he he's a writer who came out of the counterculture, and that's another one of my obsessions: is reading about the counterculture, particularly in America in the '60s. So you know, books about the Grateful Dead, about San Francisco, um, about the Beats as well. Earlier than that, you know, Kerouac and and but just that whole counterculture was incredible. Um, the advent of psychedelics into society and what effect that had on people. It was just all these young people taking LSD. Um, and society just changed massively as a result. Tom Robbins came out of that. He was, you know, the first kind of, I suppose, what the, you might call a, a psychedelic novelist. Right. Um, and his his books are just bonkers. Um, and this one, Jitterbug Perfume, is one of them. And uh, it, like a lot of his books, he, he basically picks a, up a couple of, sort of philosophical ideas and then just goes crazy with them and they they tend to go across time and space they're a bit um i don't know i suppose fantasy is it i, I possibly i don't i don't, I don't, I don't know a lot about it's certainly not science fiction they're always sort of set in the in, like this one particularly is, is set it starts in the eighth century with some king some like mythical king and the god pan the goat-headed god um so it starts with this king and pan and and their mates and but then it it then goes then the other character is a waitress in in seattle and then the story kind of goes from like the present day which i'm guessing in this book was i don't know when it was published the 80s um back into through in in history and through time and he makes all these links between between people but it's basically a, a book where the main central linking idea is perfume okay and this idea that scents and scent with S-C-E-N-T yeah. uh, and smells and things are, are kind of very important. Right. Brings, well, attraction and such. Yeah, like. yeah. yeah. Right. pheromones. And, mm. and of course, Pan is a smelly goat, basically. <laughs> but, um, but there's this sort of idea throughout history, like Pan, when, when we meet Pan in the 8th century, he's like a, a god who's on his way out. You know, people of Christianity is doing away with the old gods. And, and like literally as people stop believing in him, he gets weaker and weaker. And it's about immortality and right. what, what what is death. And um, I mean, he's written, I've read everything he's written and, and they're all crazy. Um, and this one I think uh, is is probably my favorite. Right, so uh, it's interesting, there are contemporary novelists who go through time and space, maybe not with a so much of a fantasy kind of element to it, but they, you know, they, they mess with space and time, like Kate Atkinson who's one okay. of the biggest selling female novelists of the time. She does that quite a lot. I'm just wonder uh, if you enjoyed these so much, why you don't just take a chance with a book and you I mean, I've got this kind of passionate thing that more men should read novels, right? Because a lot more women than men yeah. read novels. A novel um, and men seem obsessed with things which are supposedly kind of true. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? Something that's true. They're making that up. You know, which is which is shows a lack of imagination. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, because uh, I think, you know, like I I was saying earlier about uh, Norman Mailer, I believe that the Executioner song is a work of fiction based on fact. Mm. If you know what I mean, yeah, but it's still yeah. a, a fiction, and it's better, yeah, because it's a, it's better than a bold retelling of the yeah, story, yeah. the yeah. mythologizing yeah. and the and the atmosphere and what Nicole's thinking and what the what it felt like to be in the car as they were driving down the road. Uh, only really a novelist, a novel will do that, you know, unless it's an autobiography and somebody. Even then, you can't trust. You, perplexes me really that if you really enjoyed this and I would argue hmm. that Mailer as well um, and even possibly your next book because it's all based on mythology and uh, yeah. um, the, the imagination is what yeah. you know, you'll find in a, in a novel and you might even find more truth in a novel I don't know Well you've made a very compelling case Stephen <laughs> I, I feel if only there was a place where I could go to, to get some novels well, could you recommend any? I could recommend George Street Community Books and I'd be willing to walk around the books <laughs> And, and point at them and say that one and that one and that one. You see, I've never yeah. read any Kate Atkinson, but I have taken a chance this year, I think. Um, I've read a few by um, my wife, Caroline, uh, said, if you like Tom Robbins, you'd really like this author. And she gave me Scarlet Thomas. Okay. So I, I read one of her books and I really enjoyed it. And it was very similar to this. It kind of slipped between time and dimensions and it was all a bit crazy and a bit psychedelic and uh and i really liked it and so i've read about three or four of her books now i'm working my way through hers Fantastic. Um, and then so maybe i'll try kate well, I'll, i won't get on your case then you seem okay. to, you, yeah caroline seems to be doing a good job <laughs> she's, she's okay. trying to persuade me that there's more to life than non-fiction books in the bookshop the george street community bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere this is your fifth and final book, Matt. Save the best till it. last. Well, yeah, it's great, yeah. Um, this book is Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley by Peter Goralnik. And it's the second part of two books that he wrote about Elvis. Um, I'm a massive, massive fan of Elvis Presley. Um, I did a little count-up before I came out, and the library... Because I have, I actually have a sign, the Elvis Memorial Library, uh, on the sign of my office, and I did a count up, and I've got 163 books <laughs> about <crazy>. Elvis. <laughs> um, that doesn't include the magazines. I've got hundreds of magazines as well, so just books. But I've got 163 books about Elvis Presley, and this is the best by far. It's an incredible piece of work and Peter Graunick is a great writer about music anyway yeah. and um, I, I first read his his book Sweet Soul Music which is like the history of soul and, and um, he, he's just brilliant he knows his stuff but he's got this really like Mailer I guess this very engaging style uh, the way he writes um, and of the two books it, it's interesting because the first book goes up to 1958 and um, it's called Last Train to Memphis, and it tells the story of Elvis's childhood and how he becomes Elvis Presley. Um, 
and this book is is about the last 20 years of his life basically and and how he he ends his life and it's yet this is the one that i've read more than any other um i keep coming back to it even though it's so heartbreaking and you know how it's going to end <laughs> And it doesn't matter how many times I read it, he still dies in the end. You can see the train <laughs> going over the cliff. You can see it happening, it's, kind of. Yeah, it, it's so sad. Well, I've read I've read both these as well, and, I, and I've read quite a few Elvis books about Elvis, but not not 163, <laughs> probably like eight or nine, somewhere like that, so a reasonable amount. <laughs> and this is uh, the, the the two volumes are both fantastic. He's got some great pictures in there, aren't it, of Elvis? Looking like the most beautiful man in the world, yeah. you know. It's it. Yeah. Now, what can you tell us about it? What's um, we know the story of Elvis, don't we? Do we need? Well, to I think most people, you know, know that Elvis Presley was, you know, one of the, probably the most famous man on the planet at, at one point, um, and certainly one of the most influential artists of, of the twentieth century. Um, the the story this story begins uh, around the time that his his mother dies and and Guralnik's right to pick that as this kind of pivotal point and it, it scans the two books so um, Elvis had this inc very deep um, you might even call strange relationship with his mother very very close um, and his mother dying he was in his early twenties and a just gone into the army so he'd had this incredible career all his dreams had come true and then boom it's taken away from him he's he's taken into the army shipped over to germany um, but just before he goes to germany he's in texas and he gets the call and he, he's, his mum has, has died at age 46 um, and basically he has a nervous breakdown but of course this was the 1950s this couldn't happen it wasn't allowed nobody talked about mental health or anything like that he was just shipped off to germany um and there and there began the unmaking of elvis presley and it kind of he never gets over it he never no. gets over it and his his addiction to drugs and and all the stuff that came after his his bizarre relationships that he has priscilla you know she's 14 years old when he meets her he, he kind of forms this obsession about her and uh, you know, it, it, his life, it just, yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about Elvis is that, to me, like, when I when I talk about him, it, it's always in terms of these, like, missed opportunities that somehow, oh, what, where did it all go wrong? Like, why didn't he make this album? Why didn't he do this? And, and yet, he was the most successful yeah, artist yeah. on the planet. Well, but you do, but you do... <laughs> He, he comes back and he's brilliant. And you go, you know, like say the 68 comeback special. For exactly, He's brilliant. And then he just lets it drift. That's what you mean, isn't yeah. it, I think? He could have been consistently. Yeah. So, like, you know, people will talk about, oh, what might have happened if the Beatles had stayed together? or But, but no one talks about the Beatles' career as a kind of... Missed opportunity. No, it's yeah. just like, oh, my goodness, what incredible things they did in the seven years that they were, like, famous. Look what, they ha look what happened. With Elvis, it was like... These little flashes, literally two weeks of brilliance, and then nothing for five years. But when we say nothing, he still made, he was the highest paid film star in Hollywood. He, he, his films were just hugely successful. Terrible films, but huge successful. His albums sold millions, and most of them are awful. And I say this as an Elvis <laughs> fan, like, I love his music, but it was just wasted. His management, nobody understood. It was not, there was no sense of him as an artist. So is all this in this book? Why is this book better than the other books about Elvis? Um, I think because Guralnik understands 
what made Elvis such an incredible musician. And I think that a lot of the books, they write about Elvis as this iconic figure, this kind of movie star, musician, you know, Elvis. But Peter Guralnik doesn't ever lose sight of this little boy who's growing up. Yeah, that picture on the picture on the front, which you obviously can't see if you're listening, Elvis's eyes, it's it's yeah. kind of a human being, isn't it? Yeah. Is that the kind of thing he Yeah, he, he gets in he he gets he touches this idea that you know that Elvis his deep love of music, and I think that's the thing that comes over for me is that Graunick understands him as a musician. Um, because he, to me, he doesn't get the credit. People always say, "Oh, you like oh, Elvis? He didn't write his own songs." It doesn't matter. Like he, what he did was so important. He was a producer. He produced his own music. He he created this incredible sound um, and this feel. And his voice is just amazing. And he pushes his voice. He takes when he comes out of the army. He goes to Europe and he hears like he gets interested in opera. And he comes back out of the army and he pushes his voice into these new. You know, he does It's Now or Never, which is basically El Sol and Mio. Mm. Like the songwriters around it, oh, Elvis is interested in opera, right? Well, let's rip off some uh, European opera tunes and put some new lyrics to them and we'll have a million seller, you know. But I think it's that thing is when he's infused, he just creates these incredible moments. It's 1969 when he goes into to Chip's Moment studio in, in Memphis and in the space of two weeks he records Suspicious Mind and In the Ghetto and Don't Cry Daddy and True Love Travels on a Gravel Road and Stranger in My Hometown and all these incredible songs in two weeks and then he barely does anything else for the rest of his life mm. you know and you just think oh when you can do that and he could just turn it on and off and he chose not to because I think a lot of the time he was deeply depressed right and I think that's what Garaunik gets over is just, he's living this dream. He's got everything anyone would ever want, but he's unhappy. Because I'd say the flip side to this book, because it's, you know, uh, the, unma- the unmaking of, of Elvis Presley is, what, what's that Dirtbags book about Elvis? And he oh, did, Albert he, Goldman. Goldman, his, yeah. his book is the unmaking of Elvis Presley as well, isn't it? Yeah. But it's done with, without any sympathy yeah. kind of whatsoever. Yeah, and I mean, Goldman's book was was hugely controversial at the time. And I remember at 12 years old, it was serialised in the paper and I read it and I just couldn't believe that any of it would ever be true and I hated it. And and some of it, a lot of it was true, wasn't it? It was true, But it was told in a a different way. What's interesting reading Goldman's book as an adult is just how much he hates Elvis. Mm. He doesn't hide it. He hates him. He hates his music. He thinks that he's an uneducated... It's basically like class snobbery. Right. You know, Goldman was a, a New York intellectual who liked jazz, yeah. thought rock and roll was moronic and stupid, yeah. and he thought Elvis was just some, like, hick who got lucky. And that comes through the book. He, he's, he's not just destroying his character, and but he genuinely just hates him. He hates his music. He thinks there's no value to him. So this one, he loves yeah. Elvis. And that, I think that's what I... You know, Groening doesn't... It's not... Um, you know, it's not overly flattering of Elvis at all. He doesn't shy away from the horror of his life. The like, same stories are told, aren't they? But it's yeah. they, you feel like from a different camera angle yeah. almost. Uh, because the, you know, there, there, there are so many aspects about Elvis that make him quite an unpleasant person. Mm. He could be very petulant and childish and, and vengeful and spiteful when he wanted to be, and yet he could also be this incredibly loving, generous person. Um, you know, he had he had all those aspects to him, and Guralnik doesn't sugarcoat 
the, the hard bits. Um, but it's done from this perspective that this man was this incredible musical force. But this, I don't know, there's something about his writing that just... And I think what you were talking about with Mailer, I mean, I did actually... Like, can I just read a bit? Of course you can, yeah. Because I think this is... Like you say, it is... Um, he tells a story. So uh, this is... Uh, the bit I've picked is this really important part. It's 1964. Elvis is this huge Hollywood star. The Beatles have taken his thunder a little bit. So he's not really hip anymore. The Beatles have, have taken over America. Um, and he's, But he's huge in Hollywood and he's still making his films. And then one day this hairdresser turns up to cut his hair. Okay, so they're having a conversation. Um, and then it says, Larry finished spraying and shaping his hair. Elvis suddenly turned to him and said, Larry, let me ask you something. What are you into? Now, Larry had devoted himself seriously to spiritual studies for the last four years, and he had no doubt that there was something out of the ordinary in this question, and he didn't hesitate in his response. I said to him, obviously I do hair, but what I'm really more interested in than anything else is trying to discover where we come from, why we are here, and where we are going. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking he might think I'm some kind of kook, but while I was talking, I noticed Elvis's eyes were lighting up. And he said, man, just keep talking, just keep talking. For the next four hours, he was like a parched man in the desert. He bared his entire soul. He told Larry about his mother. He told him about the hollowness of his Hollywood life. He told Larry all the things he secretly thought and could share with no one around him. Man, Larry, he said, I swear to God, no one knows how lonely I get and how empty I really feel. And with that, he burst into tears. Who can see? So when I walk the lonely street and I've nowhere left to go When I'm feeling empty, my mood is sinking low Here's what I remember when nothing's going right Even Elvis Presley cried himself Matt's a songwriter, we said, and I, I think we said earlier his uh, website's quietloner.com. Yep. Uh, and Matt has written a number of songs which are, you know, based on uh, on what you've read in books. Aren't yes. You, don't you? Yeah, it's... quite quite a lot actually. It's it's quite interesting. I mean, I did that that album, the Battle for the Ballot, which is a sort of history based. I, I wanted to to read uh, people's own words. And another one I read was uh, My Life as a Radical by Sam Bamford. Right. You know, and, and that was a really fascinating first-person account of someone who was at the Peterloo Massacre. Mm. Um, I've written a song about Bendigo, who was a bare-knuckle boxer. I've written songs about Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think books are a great... Um, yeah. They get you thinking, don't they? They and, do. You know, yeah. and as, a, as a writer, that's inspiring. So, Matt, we've had five fantastic books from you. We're going to steal an idea from a radio show. <laughs> if we had to put you on the moon, right, okay. uh, and you had a little bubble with yeah. a reading light, <laughs> very little else, <laughs> which book would you take with you? Um, okay, well, then it would it would be uh, Careless Love. Yeah, right. it would be the Elvis. Because I, I just, yeah, I can lose myself in that and, uh, and it comes with music built in. Right. So anyway, Matt Hill... A.K.A. Quiet Loner. 
as I say, quietloner.com to go and find out all about his uh, his music and his fantastic songs and the work he does with uh, all ages. He writes songs with, with people and, and entertains all over the place. So go and go and read about Mark. Uh, you can find uh, more information out about our community bookshop at georgestreetcommunitybookshop.co.uk. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and even on Instagram. So just search for George Street Community Bookshop. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast uh, and we've got a number of other episodes available, please leave a review and subscribe. And we'll see you next time in the bookshop. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere.